Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 391. Today is Sunday the 4th of October 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. First, I'd like to give a shout out and thanks to Greg for putting up a five-star review of the show. Please do consider dropping your rating and review and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. This week's interview, meanwhile, is with Brad Flowers. Brad co-founded Bullhorn, an agency based in Kentucky that builds confident brands with language and design. He's also author of the new book, The Naming Book, Five Steps to Creating Brand and Product Names That Sell. In this conversation with Brad, we talk about Bullhorn's journey to becoming a B Corporation, managing an agency while traversing the social tensions and politically charged environment in the US. What you should be considering in how you brand and name your business and products, handling tensions and stress in business, and how to make your business more meaningful and valuable. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Now for the show. Brad Powers, great to have you on the show. Lovely to catch up with you a little bit before this. I, um, I really appreciated reading your book, with the naming book, which you brought out bravely amid pandemic, at least at the very beginning of it. Uh, you are a partner at Bullhorn. In your own words, Brad, how do you describe yourself? I would describe myself as a reluctant entrepreneur who hopes to use my time here to improve the world to the degree to which I can. It's a lovely thing. And you, like me, um, have a degree in literature. You studied yes. English. English. I mean, I, I mean, did your parents do the same thing that I had, which is why on earth would you study English? How are you going to get a job other than teaching? Yeah, yeah, they wanted me to be a chiropractor. I think that was the that was the big the big vision, and um, and I was like, well, I really like to read books, and so yeah, I I, I pursued a degree in literature, and I assumed funny funny that that's kind of how I ended up here. I I was um, I was taking time off of school to apply to PhD programs, and I took a job at a local bike shop. I was fixing bicycles. And I kind of found out two things then. One, I realized that I really didn't like to teach, which was kind of a problem for someone who was pursuing a career in teaching. And um, two, I, I found out that I was really interested in business. And a bicycle shop's kind of like a, a basic version of, you know, buy low, sell high. You know, it's pretty, you kind of learn some really basic fundamentals. Uh, and so I was really interested in the marketing side. And that's what kind of led me to, to start Bullhorn. Well, there I was thinking you were being a chiropractor for bicycles. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. Just crack it in the right spot. So um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Bullhorn before we get into the naming book. Sure. So Bullhorn, um, one of the things that struck me uh, very surprisingly for me, because it's not what I would call as usual uh, for an agency, you are a certified B Corporation. So yeah. for, for many people, they won't know what that is. Mm -hmm. What is it and why did you choose to have a certification? the B Corp certification. Yeah, it's a certification sort of like, um, like an organic certification is for produce. It's, it's a, an outside organization that comes in and says that you're, or verifies that you're doing the things you're doing. And in this case, they analyze it on five 
fronts, which I'm not going to be able to remember off the top of my head. But we can never remember five things. We can only remember (laughs) three. They should tell. Go back to tell some marketing. Only three. (laughs) Right. So it has to do with environmental impact, how you relate to your employees, your customers, uh, the governance of your organization. Uh, So all of those things that kind of. when you're when you're running a business, making sure you're doing it in the kind of in the best possible way. And the question I have for you is why? Um, and it could sound obvious, but really, uh, let's say it's it's so rare for an agency to wish to do this. As far as I understand, I don't know how many mm-hmm. agencies are B Corp certified, but why did you decide that this is what you wanted to do? Well, for us, it was never it was never really a question. Um, I think it was, it's just a direct result of our values. It's the sort of people we were, and it didn't seem strange or risky or out of place. It was over time as, as we, as the company became more and more mature and we were able to talk more clearly about what we do, why we do it um, and how we do it. B Corp certification just became an obvious next step. You know, I think if we're talking about the growth of the business, like I said, I was a reluctant entrepreneur. I had a degree in English. I knew how to fix bicycles and I didn't know a single thing about branding or marketing. And I started a branding company in the fall of 2008, frankly, because there weren't that many other jobs to be had then as the, the kind of the recession became worse. And so I didn't start with any, any of the baggage that other agency people had because I'd never worked in an agency. I didn't know what agencies did really. I just knew that, you know, if we tried hard and were nice, that people would give us a shot. And, um, and so I think the way I describe it is we kind of thought about our work in three types of ways. One, what, what were we good at as we took on projects? What do we feel like we, we could do well? Two, what made money, which a lot of the things we initially thought we would do, turns out we couldn't make any money at. And then, then three, what is a benefit to our community? And, um, and so I kind of thinking about it in that sort of way, let it, let us kind of inevitably, I think, to become a, a B Corp. One of the challenges that I have observed in the agency model in general, mm-hmm. to your second point, is that the way to make money as an agency isn't necessarily the way to build another person's brand. Mm-hmm. In essence, you know, doing another 30 second spot where you hire all the team, you get all the value add in that creative, but doing a perfect 30 second spot, which may have been a high margin business previously, doesn't really smack of authenticity, doesn't really smack of, of the way the digital marketing world is going. Right. So they would try to propose something that they made money in, but wasn't necessary or useful for their clients. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And it's something we worry about a lot and think about, you know, to what degree are we suggesting things just because it's what we do or, and, and is it actually useful and beneficial to our clients? And so we're certainly uh, self-reflective in, in that way, more so now than ever, as things are changing so quickly right now. And we're wondering, you know, how relevant is what we what we used to, the things we used to do, how relevant will they be, you know, next year? Uh, so what we've done mainly is that kind of that core front end brand work of your kind of your core, identifying your core values, your kind of um, the language that articulates those, the core visual identity. And, um, and so we, we didn't go too much outside of that, but still, I, you know, I still think 
how how much is that what people need right now and what I don't know. I guess just to say, yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's, it's a, it is a weak spot in the agency model that you, you kind of think about yourself. It's kind of the hammer and nail thing. You know, if you're a hammer, mm. everything looks like a nail. Exactly. Well, the good news is we'll always need brand names. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was reflecting it's a topic I want to get into a little bit later as well, but um, just taking bullhorn. And of course I don't actually know all the parameters and the finesse and nuance of the word bullhorn. Um, but I, I am thinking of how the social mo- movement in America is making people review all, all sorts of names of, of, of uh, sports clubs. Uh, you know, the, I know, and I'm thinking Bullhorn. Well, that sounds like a very masculine name. Uh, is that not a problem as well? And, and it's amazing mm-hmm. how even in a name today, you can get called out for something which may not be true uh, yeah. and, and may not be relevant, but out of context, you're out a fish out of water. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think bullhorn specifically is cha- the, the meaning is, well, then uh, we talked a little bit about it before the, how meaning kind of changes over time. And even now in, in this current era of protest with people yelling into bullhorns, you know, the name is, is more relevant and, and different now than it was a year ago uh, as it's, as it's more prominent. And it, I think the name has a little bit more, uh, I don't know if it's aggressive, but certainly like an element of social engagement where before it kind of sounded a little bit old timey. Uh, I think now it, it, you know, it has a timeliness that's, that's different. That's uh, fortuitous at that level. Yeah. Which really for me brings up this key point, which is to what extent when you're looking at a name, politics can come into it you mentioned sort of the front end at some level politics we're all political beings whether sure whether you like it or not you probably have some form of lobby uh, a pr communications lobby in washington that's trying to do something with the ftc that has impact on your business brad so yeah, at some level with bullhorn you can have a political stance but i was more interested philosophically how yeah. do you, where does politics come into branding and naming a corporation these days for you and the work you're doing? Well, for us, I think it's, it's hugely influential because what we're primarily trying to do is hopefully if we're successful, we're not giving someone another bullhorn brand, but what hopefully we're doing is we're helping organizations kind of articulate and become their, their best the best versions of themselves. And so in that sense, we're not really talking to them about customer archetypes or clients. We're really helping. It's, it's an introspective process more so. Um, you know, it's not really uh, looking outward in the same way that most marketing is. We're really helping them talk about themselves. Why do they do? What values do they bring? What are their values? So inevitably politics comes up because, um, because like you said, we're all political people. It's all wrapped up in, in how we are and how we interact in the world. And so what's interesting is working with teams and seeing that the points at which that comes in conflict and what, what, you know, what, what kind of tensions there are. Because I think you know, tensions can be bad, but also tension within anything and within a brand too, that's where it starts to feel real and starts to feel alive. And that, those can be some of the things that I think are, are the most interesting if you can surface some of those tensions. It's like you say in your book, it's it really, you, you are on your site anyway, you like to be honest. 
Mm-hmm. And and I would I would use another word instead of tension, which is stress. In, uh-huh. in 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 some ways, people say, well, stress is bad, but also you need some stress, which is good. And yeah. so it's sort of in the same way, you know, you know, too much tension is is overwhelming, but you need some tension, like the tension sure. between opposing ideas in sales and marketing, and and so confrontation of ideas. And if we can't have the confrontation of ideas, then we're going to become plain vanilla in a hurry. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's I think that's well said. Um, so the naming book, what's in a name? <laughs> what's in a name? Well, I think anymore when in an era of such heightened competition, if the one of the best things a name can do is buy you, you know, ten seconds. If, if it can buy someone's attention for ten seconds, a name is is doing a pretty good job. Um, and to that point, I give an example of a company. Uh, that I that I came across here. I was in the grocery store, walking through the frozen food section, and the, this it's a large grocery store. There are probably thirty freezer doors of frozen stuff, and it's like, what you know? How can you possibly decide what to buy? It's it's a you know a harrowing task. And so I'm trying to think of you know what would my kids possibly eat for lunch at, for school. And, and I'm in the burritos, and I stop in front of this this um, one particular burrito company. And the company's, um, the company's, it's spelled E V O L. And so I stopped and I was like, evil. And then like the, <laughs> but the way it's rendered, it, it makes you want to read it backwards. And so it's like, oh no, they mean love, but it's love backwards. But is that evil? And then I'm like, what does that mean? And then it's like, oh no, it's evolve. Like um, we're evolving, and this is like a natural product. And then I was kind of exasperated and didn't know, so I just bought the damn burritos. You know, I, the point is, it, you know, I stopped for a second. I was confused. I don't even like the name. I find it kind of irritating and overly kind of complicated. But um, but I bought the product. You know, so maybe it worked. Well, it reminds me of the passage in Amadeus the film about Mozart where he is able to speak backwards and he says, Oh, evil I tub, which means, but I love you. Um, anyway, uh, silly little anecdote, Nespa. Um, <laughs> uh, when, when we have these names, uh, you, you go through a really interesting pragmatic approach, Brad, which I really appreciated. And, and you weren't afraid to add in, what really counts in a name, which is what do you stand for? Your values, the internal side. And I noticed, and I, I imagine that this was absolutely purposeful. You say for one, one point, you know, take five stickers and what do you stand for for you as a person? Yeah. So uh, if you're, especially if you're working with a small company, that's, you know, the, the entrepreneur, then sure. you have your employees. What would your employees say? And then interestingly, you say, what would a stranger say or an outsider say? Mm-hmm. where I would have probably been tempted to say a, a customer more. And, and what I liked is that the second group were the employees. And I, I consider that more an inside out approach. Is that more systemic or that's how you like to approach creating names is really think inside out. Yeah, I, I think so. And it prob you know, that probably betrays a little bit how I wrote the book and how the book came about. So it started off, we, um, we didn't start off as like a naming agency or anything. It's another one of those things that's in, in the analysis of work. We got a job to, to name a nonprofit. It was really fun and challenging. And so we were like, yeah, we'd like to do that again. And we got more naming work. And then I, at some point I kind of needed to, I needed help. So I needed to hire freelancers and I had writers 
who, you know, were great writers, but uh, it's, but then naming something is, a, is something totally different. It's another skill set. And so I wanted to help outline a process by which they could take ideas and come down and, and kind of like distill them into some names. And so I read all the popular literature about naming, and then I started looking into the academic literature, what kind of what were linguists saying, you know, what, what is, how, how do people do this? What are the kind of the academic marketers? And I realized that most naming books kind of fell into two camps. There was, um, there were people who talked about the history of names, which is interesting to hear the backstory, but if you're trying to name something, isn't particularly helpful. Uh, and the other one was written from the perspective of people who were good at naming things. And they told you basically what they liked and didn't like. And again, that's also helpful and it can be insightful, but it still doesn't really help you actually name the thing. And so uh, as I started the, outlining the process for my team and really for myself in an effort to make the process less chaotic, I realized that really entrepreneurs had this exact same problem. You know, they want to, they need to go from, they have a big idea they don't really want to learn that much about naming. They just want a process by which they can kind of come up with the best name and then probably not do it again. And so uh, that's kind of how the, how the book was developed. And so in that sense, it's certainly, it's certainly really inside out um, because I think more and more, there are just ways to talk that if you can kind of talk personally and, and have a more personal voice when you're talking with customers, it's just, to me, it's just more effective than, than trying to think of like an abstracted customer archetype and then imagining how you might potentially talk to this abstracted thing. If you just talk up like kind of who you are and how you are, someone out there will resonate with it. And that's great. And other people won't. And that's great too. The way I summarize that thought, Brad, is make it personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the more it, it relates on a personal level to you as the founder entrepreneur, yeah. And to the employees, the more likely they're going to go out there with their personal convictions. It's, it's sort of like, you know, selling something you don't believe in or right. not. Absolutely. So when you think of a, a name, you, you talk about the challenges and, and how some, you know, you always, there's always a risk. You might piss off some proportion or so part, part of the population I couldn't help think that, but think when I was going through this, that on the one hand, there's this desire to stand out, be different, make that name mm-hmm. that makes you for 10 seconds pause mm-hmm. to use a, a jumbled metaphor or allegory we were talking about before. Yep. Um, but on the other hand, there's actually such a, a, a dearth of obvious names. You kind of are forced to take a leap of faith. Yeah. That's to say you're almost lucky to say, well, anyway, you don't really have a choice. You can't take bullhorn. It's already taken. So megaphone set for you. I mean, of course that wouldn't work, but you you end up being forced by the lack of great choice to come up with something that you might not have wanted in the first place, but inshallah, this is what I have. Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely the, that's definitely the case. And it kind of depends a little on the industry and the competition within the industry uh, that one i think i talk a little bit about well i think there are at least two hard things about naming and maybe three and the first thing is most people skip over altogether is a little what you're talking about which is establishing criteria by which you're going to make a decision you know how do you know how will you know that this is the right name for you 
most people think they're going to like feel it or something. Uh, which if, if you're going about it that way, it's going to be maddening and frustrating and you're ne- not going to find the thing because you're just, because it hasn't existed yet as a company. So you haven't like backfilled all of the meaning. So it's not going to have the same sort of impact that a name like Apple would have because it's fresh, you know, so it's, it's just a word on a piece of paper. Um, so you, you, because of that, you need to establish criteria. And one of which is, is competition. And if you're in a highly competitive industry, you're right. You're kind of limited. It's either going to be a very obscure word. It's going to be a made up word or some otherwise kind of messed with word, whether it's kind of like Facebook where it's a compound or Spotify where it has the affixed IFY um, or Pinterest where it's kind of two words smushed together. So you, you know, you're going to end up with, with one of those things. If, if you're, if your business, you, you don't have a ton of competition. If you're say a, a local or regional wealth planner, and maybe you only have four or five or a dozen competitors, you know, you have a little bit more, more latitude on what you can, on what you can do. This is true. I, I yet I, I feel like um, the first port of call, certainly in my exercises has always been, does the URL exist? And the second yes. one is, is the, is the Twitter handle free? Cause I kind of live on Twitter and, and I, that sort of is like a, my first stomping ground. And yes. then afterwards, like you say, there's a backfilling, uh, a make it come alive kind of feeling. Uh, and yeah. um, uh, just to give an example, I, I, I was all about mindset and I created my first company leaving L'Oreal and I wanted us to really just speak about mindset. And so, uh, and the second characteristic of mindset is a putting the why into the business. And so I spelt yep. mindset with the why and, and then, uh, and then little by little, it dawned on me. Oh, well, actually my name is Minter and my wife's name is Yendi with a Y. I was like, well, actually, so it's my organization. It's Minter and yeah. Yendi's organization. So I started, you know, all of a sudden, built up these new stories. And so if you're open to them, then all of a sudden, like you say, the mythology starts to become real at some level as you allow for these things to happen. Yeah. It's a happy accident, you know, and those happen if you're, um, that happen more often if you're diligent, hard, you know, working hard, applying your craft, you know, it's just, it just happens. In your book, uh, you, you, you talk a lot about values or you, mm-hmm. you certainly you allow for those to come around. And naturally, I had to stop and smile when I saw that Bullhorn's top value was the combination of empathy and honesty. Yeah. Tell, tell us about how those two came around. Well, we were dead set on three to five and we had six. So we ended up creating three pairs. <laughs> so empathy and honesty is one value. I think I, this actually gets back, I think, nicely to what we were talking about earlier, whether it's like a, that kind of tension or stress. And I think uh, empathy and honesty kind of push and, and stress, stress each other a little in our, in our interest. Well, we talk a lot about empathy in general, but I think the concern with empathy in the consulting setting like we're in is that sometimes it can be a little soft. And so you need to kind of counterbalance that with honesty to be able to speak frankly, you know, the truth to your clients or to your coworkers if they're not doing what they need to be doing, or hopefully someone would, you know, be able to do it to me as well. Um, 
so it's, I think it's, we were thinking, we were thinking a lot about how to, how to create tension and kind of vibrancy in these. And that's, that's how we ended up with, with those two, because empathy is essential, whether it's working together as a team in a creative pursuit, you have to have empathy with the different roles people have and understanding that a designer is trying to design the best thing and the account manager is trying to manage the relationship in the best possible way. And sometimes there's going to be friction there. And if, if you don't have empathy with each other and, and assume that the other person has kind of the, the best interest in mind, the relationship's going to suffer. So I think internally we have to have empathy and then externally too, you know, we do rebranding projects 20 or so a year and you have to have uh, empathy with the client that it's something that they're probably going to do once in their career, probably not just, you know, we do 20 a year and this is maybe they'll do it once in their whole life. And so understanding that it's a stressful, scary pro process and that we kind of need to sometimes slow down and help kind of uh, slow the process down, make sure that the process is comforting, et cetera. Um, so empathy is super important, but then again, it has to be balanced with honesty. If we can't talk frankly with each other. We can't do anything. And I, I, I can hear and I can understand why there might be this appearance of tension. Yeah. Yet I think that empathy is, is, a, is a real skill. And yeah. honesty with empathy is a, can be the exact right combination. Because honesty doesn't mean being unempathic. It's the delivery yeah. that helps sure. the honesty to land. And I think that a lot of people could do with a lot more honesty which would actually be the more empathic delivery in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And um, getting back to our discussion about literature, I think reading, I think reading fiction is one of the best ways to build empathy as a human. So for all of you listening, put down some of your business books and read some of the classics. hundred percent. And, and by <laughs> the way, if, you know, if you're male read, books uh, about female characters yeah. uh, if yeah, you're yeah. white read books about a more ethnically diverse characters uh, yes. and go out of your way because it's far too easy to pick up a book Absolutely. about a book about me kind of thing right right too much totally. of that um you you mentioned uh, that transformation is only possible with empathy i would like mm -hmm. to ask you brad to elaborate on how that is the case well, it, is, it gets back to the work I was mentioning. I mean, I think branding is ultimately a transformational act. People want to go from one thing to another thing. You know, there's a there's dissonance in, in their minds between who they think they are and how they, it, for our work specifically, how they talk and how they look. And so we're helping them kind of move into this new version of themselves that they can kind of see but don't know how to get there. And so in order to in order to bring that out, I think you have to, you have to be able to put yourself in their shoes and it gets back to like, if it's, if they're coming to us for like the bullhorn look or the bullhorn sound, you know, we're failing because it's not taking, it's not taking their experience into play and it's not listening to how they talk about themselves. It's not listening to of all the million things you could do with your life. Why are you doing this specific thing you're doing? And, and I think if you can articulate that, you know, you you really have something special and there are probably only a few companies who are actually able to do that, but we shoot for it. That's a lovely, lovely proposition. Another thing that I, I really, I, I raised my eyebrows on because essentially not, not that I disagreed, but I just wanted to understand more. You yeah. wrote branding is ethically neutral. We are not. 
I think that's not in your book. That might be on your website. Yeah. Yeah. As far as Bullhorn's approach is concerned, but it certainly got my attention. Please tell us what, what, what you mean by that. Well, we are, um, we're trying to do the same thing. I, I, it's, it, it's a funny one as a branding company, you neglect your own, your own company, you know, like the cobbler's shoes kind of thing. And, um, and so we've taken this kind of COVID area era as an opportunity to think about who we want to be and articulate it more clearly. And so some of this language that you're talking about is, is fairly new. And the point was, I think we want to be more, we just want to be clearer with who we want to be and who we want to work with. And so branding is ethically neutral. The way that came from, I, I don't know, I think I was just talking to a client and it came out of my mouth and our creative director was like, you need to remember that. If we can, <laughs> if we can just write that down, I think we'll be onto something. Um, and so I think the point is like, you can use branding for all sorts of nefarious purposes. It's clear throughout history. There have been excellent organizations who have done, who have been great branders and have done horrific things. And so the point is what, what we do isn't inherently, you know, good in any way. So that puts the burden on us to do two things. I think one is run the company in the best possible way, which we talked about in, in relation to becoming a B corporation and two, seek out like-minded clients who are also working to use their business for good. Uh, and so that's kind of the second point where branding is ethically neutral, but we, we can't really afford to be uh, in general, I think, but it feels more pressing right now for some reason where there's yeah. so much tension, especially here, as I sit in the United States, just a few miles away from where Brianna Taylor was murdered. Um, you know, it feels pretty, feels to us pretty pressing to, um, to kind of say, say who we are and, and, you know, the truth is bullhorn's not for everybody. And we're pretty, we're pretty fine with that. hundred percent. It's such the thing to try to sort of want to do everything for everybody. Yeah. And, and, and that is such the antithetical position for a real brand. So kudos for you for doing that. I um, was going to ask you one last question uh, yeah. in, in, uh, before our time's up. Um, you, you write about how, and you just talked about how some big brands don't have, aren't good at their names are, are not good. And, yeah. and, and certainly I agree with that. Um, uh, you don't actually mention brands that you think are bad is I, I think your editor probably said, we don't need to call them out. Uh, but on this podcast, you're allowed. I'm going to start, <laughs> I'm going to start to give you time to warm up. Um, the one that really just jumps out at me and makes me fall roll R O T F L or whatever it is. Um, roll on the floor laughing is the car, the car phone warehouse. What the car a name. Phone. <laughs> car phone warehouse. It's a, a big um, mobile telephone operator in, in England. That's about to go hugely bust, I think. Uh, but what, what a silly name that is a car phone. Yeah. Warehouse. I think the funny thing is if, if it was a, if it was a startup who was putting pressure on zoom or Skype, if, if a company came out and called themselves car phone, I think that'd be a hilarious name. And it's funny how, context matters so much you know yeah. if it's a high-tech company called carphone you kind of laugh and think okay i get it they're kind of making this like old yeah. tech yeah, it's, it's a joke yeah fax yeah, machine joke. me fax machine fax. me right so do you have uh what, what are some of the the examples of bad names out there that can also be instructive for us um 
Well, yeah, I, pur- I purposefully don't talk about that. Partly, it's partly uh, just the philosophy of the book. I, I, I try to be pretty pragmatic in that we want names. We're looking for names that work and sometimes names that work I might not like, and it doesn't, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter if I like it. That's not one of the criteria points is does, does right. naming expert Brad Flowers like this name? That's never on the criteria list. Right, which is what some, you said before. It's like some agencies that propose them because they like it. And I can understand why philosophically you wouldn't, but I was more wondering if there were insights as to what makes a bad brand name, maybe through an example that sometimes makes it concrete. Yeah, I, I mean, any of the a name that I think is particularly ineffective are are names that are uh, trend following, kind of me too sort of names. So, like, if if you look at the the history of the affixed names that are some word with I F Y, there's the year 2010, I think, or 2009, <laughs> Shopify and Spotify started. They started in the same year, I think. And there were two or three names that were registered. The next year, there were 10. The next year, there were like 180. Mm. And so I think trend following, number one, is bad. And it gets, again, it gets back to like just not paying attention to who you are. It's like it worked for right. them. It'll probably work for me. But that's just never the case. The point is like, you know, what, what works for you? And if it works for you, it's going to work with other people. Totally. And then I think names that are too, like, I personally don't really like names that are too self-conscious. I talk about Evol, like, it just feels like it's like trying too hard. Um, or names that feel overly branded, which I, I think that's just because I think about names so much. And I know, like, my my tendencies. And so I kind of, like, hate that about myself. And so I don't like it in other names. Um, yeah. That, well, well, certainly, that those are good examples. What certainly strikes me is when you see wordsmithing, in the yeah. sub the subtitles and you're like oh my god they they spent much money with a consultant to write those up they are not lived within the organization cut out that crap make it happen yeah. and then talk about it i'd rather that than sort of write about it and then that's who we are but it's not actually yeah. a real reflection i think the the worst one maybe for me is the names where you, as an organization, you have to constantly tell people how to pronounce it because it's so much wasted energy and time. There's the, the, a big start, startup here in the States called Quibi, which has been get, getting a lot of press lately. And it's Q-U-I-B-I. And I wrote an article for Entrepreneur Magazine talking about why I think part of the, part of the problem is the name is so weird. And I, I can I can picture how it ha- I don't know that this is how it happened, but I can picture how it happened as it evolved from these naming workshops. And probably one of the criteria is they need a name that's really quickly can go quickly international. And so that that makes sense. And it's it's a pretty easy. That's kind of like consonant vowel, consonant vowels, pretty easy construction in lots of languages across the world. But when it got kind of mired and didn't grow as quickly as possible, it's there's this ambiguous pronunciation here. Is it quibby? Or like, I think like a Francophone would probably think Kibi, like with that pr- pronouncing the Q-U-I-B-I in a different sort of way. So- and The Chinese um, might go Chibi or Chuibi. Sure. So right. it, it, yeah, and so it's, um, I, I, I think it's, and so they spend a lot of time saying, well, it's, 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 it's short for quick bites. And then it's like, well, but that doesn't make sense because then it'll be quibi. And then you can't you can't really say that either. So anyway, I, I think uh, if you have to spend a lot of time telling people how to how to pronounce it, you should probably scrap it. 
Well, at the same time, you bring up a really interesting point, which is this international concept. You know, you're a startup yeah. in the middle of, let's say, a state in America, and yeah. and you you know you you got your first hundred thousand dollars revenues. To what yeah. extent do you want to be thinking about your internationalization? And uh, I, I think of um, a brand I, I used to work for uh, at L'Oreal called Kerastase, which is a high-end luxury hair care company mm. uh, brand. And uh, we purchased it many years ago. And uh, it was called Kerastase in all the countries. But when it got to Germany, stars didn't fit very sound because we're 1960. Um, so the Stasis, which were the secret police um, uh. that tended to lock people up and torture them to death, didn't seem like a good thing. So they changed it to Keralogi, which meant the science of the hair, science of the keratin in German. And, uh, and then, so we had these two brands, Kerastase and Keralogi. And so working on it was just a nightmare, you know, having oh, two yeah. brands to, to cover it. And finally, uh, in roughly the year 2000, we decided to make the, the bold idea of, of history had gone. The context that we talked about before was now no longer quite as relevant. And it's now mm. called Kerastase everywhere. But my goodness, the internationalization component can be tricky. Oh, it's so Brad, tricky. I want you to, uh, you'll send me the, the link for that entrepreneur article that I can put yeah. in the show notes. How can people track you down? Get your book, of course. The, yeah. The, the best place for the book is thenamingbook.com, and that'll link out to all the m- most common places you would buy uh, a book. And you can find us at bullhorncreative.com, and we're also at Bullhorn Creative on social channels. Superlative. Will do. Brad, <laughs> I'll send all that. Great to have you. Lovely conversation, lovely topic, yeah. and, uh, and really interesting to hear about how you are, you're seeing the evolution of ethics and politics. Yeah in a name what's in a name brad flowers thanks again thank you thanks for having listened to this recording of the minter dialogue show you'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com if you enjoyed the show please head over to itunes to give a rating and review and to finish here's a song i wrote with stephanie singer a convinced man
challenge so life's not incomplete what's wrong with challenge i know soon we all die i like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.